Hi, uh, it's been a minute. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, this is Taylor uh, speaking on behalf of of myself and Cat. Yeah, July kind of disappeared into a black hole for Square Mile of Murder, um, and I'm here to tell you why. Basically, it was a hell of a month for the two of us. Cat um, started off, you know, on a real high note. Uh, starting off with her birthday, July 4th. And then she immediately got sick and lost her voice, which was a bummer. And it meant that we couldn't record. And then as soon as Kat's voice started to come back, I managed to get COVID for the at least second, possibly third time of this whole pandemic shenanigan time period. Uh, And this time around, it really knocked me back for like a solid two weeks. I was out of work. I was just kind of not able to do anything. And um, you can probably tell my voice still sounds a little bit weird. It's a little bit rough. I cough a lot. It's not pleasant. Um, But I am just starting to feel back to slightly normal-ish. But as you might imagine, that basically means we got like nothing done for the podcast. So now we are trying to get back into the swing of things as much as humanly possible at this point. We have a plan. So basically what's going to happen is for the rest of the month of August, we are going to be releasing some previously unheard on the main feed older Patreon bonus episodes so that You guys will still have something to listen to. It'll still be something that you haven't heard before. We're doing that so that we can give ourselves a little bit of time to get caught up and um, pre-record some content that we can start releasing in September. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, we've already posted a little update on Patreon, but basically uh, we paused Patreon's August billing cycle so that our lovely patrons weren't charged uh, for another month after we gave them basically nothing uh, the previous month. So that's what's happening there. If you do sign up for Patreon in August, you will still get charged. So just be aware of that. If you don't want to get charged in August, um, don't sign up in August. You can sign up in September when we plan to resume the billing cycle. It's a whole thing. Anyway, patrons will also be getting access to separate bonus episodes that we have not released, that we have not released to lower tier patrons before. So that's our plan. Basically, everyone is getting some kind of new, new to them episode. It's just not newly recorded episodes. Um, And yeah, we are hoping to really get back into the swing of things um, as much as possible. We really appreciate everyone and anyone who has stuck with us um, through this whole thing. And um, we can't wait to start looking at more weird and, and, and wacky crimes with all of you again. So thank you so much for listening. Stick around through August to hear some some new to you episodes and we will see you with new content again in September. Thanks so much guys.
Enjoy the episode. I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This is your monthly bonus extravaganza. Yes. Welcome. Uh, following the case of Joseph James D'Angelo, aka the Golden State Killer slash East Area Rapist slash original Night Stalker in California, forensic genealogy has become the new must-have crime-fighting tool for cold case units. The Golden State Killer wasn't actually the first cold case to be solved using forensic genealogy. Four bodies in two barrels were found 15 years apart in Bearbrook State Park in New Hampshire. And this 35-year-old case is now only partly solved, but what is solved is due to forensic genealogy in the first of its kind. So, this month we're looking into the Bearbrook murders how forensic genealogy was first used as a crime-fighting tool, and some of the potential risks and dangers of this shiny new technology, mm-hmm. which is perhaps one of the biggest developments in forensic science since the development of DNA profiling, which is 35 years ago. God, yeah. <laughs> Before um, we were born. Yes. Oh, lo, those many years ago. A quick disclaimer before we start, uh, as we are wont to do, to tell you that uh, we are not biologists or forensic scientists or genealogists, any any of those sorts of things. Everything that we know about DNA and genealogy comes from reading about or listening to other podcasts about or watching documentaries about the subject. So, you know. Forgive us, please, if we get some of the finer details wrong. Um, we're just regurgitating what we've read and mm-hmm. and encountered elsewhere. So, you, you know. know. We're doing our best here. Yeah. It's, it's also like, I mean, the last science class I took was in high school. So I Same. don't have a really strong, like, I think science is interesting, but I don't have a really strong, like, formal background in it. So... I just sort of glean, we glean what we can, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have sort of a kind of a hobbyist's background um, in genealogy because my auntie's really into it. Yeah. Uh, But that's it. Yeah. See, I've done like genealogy stuff. My dad and I used to do some when I was a teenager, but not forensically. (laughs) Yeah. This was before Ancestry.com offered... (laughs) DNA tests. Yeah, same actually. So um, our story starts in the summer of 1985 in Bearbrook State Park in southern New Hampshire, which is in New England, uh, north northeast United States. And now, as one of the largest state parks in New Hampshire, Bearbrook covers 10,000 acres of woodland and has more than 40 miles of hiking and mountain biking trails, as well as swimming spots, lakes, campgrounds, and like a bunch of other recreation activities, uh, which is, that's a big park. Um, now, New Hampshire itself, if you're not aware, is the fifth smallest and 10th least populous state in the United States. Uh, so it's 
a lot of woods. <laughs> um, they have no income tax, no sales tax. New Hampshire's state motto is live free or die. It's a really interesting place because it's like, it's surrounded by the sort of liberal strongholds of Boston and, and, you know, Massachusetts is right underneath it. But it's also got this very like fiercely independent population as well. And that like, if you, if you try to come for anyone in New Hampshire, they will fuck you up. <laughs> um, uh, which is true of like most places in New England. I mean, that, that's true of a lot of places in England. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, like, it is beautiful country. Um, you know, I've spent a, a fair amount of time there o over the years. It, I, I like to drive there to go shopping because of the no sales tax, because Vermont has very high sales tax. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically like very woodsy, mountainous. There's big hills, trees. And it's it's the granite state, isn't it? It is the granite state. So like quarries, lots of quarries, and um, you know your your traditional rural industries like logging and and stone and all that kind of stuff. So, but yes, New Hampshire is beautiful. There's lots of rocks and there's no taxes. So <laughs> we are in 1985. Um, and at that time, the murder rate in New Hampshire was about 15 per year. And now, you know, obviously a very dangerous place to live. Uh, but it just got worse because in 2018, that number had risen to 21 per year. And then last year it spiked to a whole 24. So, <laughs> um, not common to have homicides in New Hampshire, clearly. Uh, and according to USA Today, the state has the lowest homicide rate in the entire country. 15 murders per year at that time. So when there were two separate murders at opposite ends of the Bearbrook State Park discovered on consecutive days, the local area was a little bit in shock. The first was the shooting death of Danny Parkett, who was shot on his own driveway on November 9th, 1985, in Hooksett, which is a small town on the southwest side of uh, Bearbrook State Park. His death was ruled as a hunting accident in May 1986, but the shooter was never found. The day after Danny Parkett was shot dead, a hunter discovered a 55-gallon barrel six miles away in Allenstown, which is on the northern side of Bearbrook State Park. Now, despite the name, Allenstown is more like a village. Uh, it has a little more than 4,000 people, and although the town limits span 20 square miles, most of that is part of the state park. Mm -hmm. And the area that the barrel was found in had once been a private, well, it still is private property to this day. It belonged to a small camping store, which also served as a sort of general convenience store for the nearby um, trailer park. 
The store had burned down in the summer of 1983, but the site had never been properly cleared or repurposed. Um, when the attending officer opened up the barrel, he found himself face to face with the uh, decomposing body of an adult and a child. Now, the local police force was so small that there were usually only one or two officers on duty, and so when the barrel was discovered, they ended up having to deputize locals to help secure the perimeter and keep the press away from the scene. The discovery of the two bodies in the barrel initially pulled officers and resources away from the investigation into Danny Paquette's death uh, in the days following the discovery. But ultimately, state police focused on Danny Paquette's death because uh, there was more evidence there. And so resources were then pulled from Bear Brook. Uh, the two cases also created false leads for each other because some uh, people speculated that there was maybe a serial killer active in the area. And that's why you had all this stuff happening at once. Um, when the barrel was recovered and autopsies were carried out on the two bodies, they were discovered to be a woman who is estimated to be between the ages of 23 and 33, and a girl estimated to be aged between 8 and 10, and they were believed to be mother and daughter. Uh, now, New Hampshire at the time had so few murders that they didn't even have their own medical examiner's office, so the bodies had actually been flown to Maine for the autopsies. Uh, their cause of death was blunt force trauma, but nobody could be exactly sure when the two were murdered and put into the barrel, uh, but it was estimated to be sometime in the late 1970s or early 1980s. And now, investigators' first step was to try to identify the victims, because, you know, that's a pretty important place to start when you're looking for a killer. Um... And they examined hundreds of missing persons reports from New England throughout the 1970s and 80s. And composite sketches were created and distributed around the region, but law enforcement still didn't manage to identify the victims. And unfortunately, the case went cold. So approximately 18 months after the discovery of the two bodies in the barrel, law enforcement released the bodies because they didn't know who they were. Uh, there was nobody to release them too either so yeah very sad it is yeah so there's no identity there's no one to release them to parishioners of the local churches raised money uh for them to be given a funeral and in may 1987 they were buried at the saint john baptist cemetery in allenstown it was a graveside cer ceremony which was led by a local catholic priest and methodist minister because obviously they didn't know. <laughs> I think that's nice, yeah, though. I do too. Yeah, there was a few local residents attended, as well as uh, law enforcement officers. So the adult and child were buried in a single seal casket, and a local business donated a headstone, which read, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33, and a girl child aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. Uh, various leads and tips were followed up, but ultimately they led to nothing. And there was no real movement on the case for 15 years. It's so long. 
So the case had been handed over to the New Hampshire State Police. And in 2000, the case was reopened and um, handed off to one of the state police detectives, John Cody. So detectives with the state police's major crime unit were handed one or two cold cases and they were expected to work on them whenever they weren't investigating active cases. So a lot of our uh, research for this episode came from a podcast called Bear Brook by New Hampshire Public Radio, which we encourage you all to go and check out after you finish listening to this because it is really, really interesting. It's so in-depth. It's like 10 episodes, I think. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, yeah. So yeah, go and check it out. Yeah. We will put a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But John Cody, the state police detective, was one of the many people uh, associated with this case who was interviewed for that podcast. Uh, he described the Bearbrook murders as just gnawing away at him, almost like a gripping thriller. Once you read the first chapter, you have to read the second and then the next and the next. And pretty soon, the Bearbrook case was taking up all of his time and energy when he wasn't on an active case. So in May 2000, John Cody decided to drive out to Bearbrook State Park to try and familiarise himself with the park, get a better idea of the area, the lay of the land, all of that, and obviously exactly where the bodies were found. But as Cody was walking around the area surrounding the site of the barrel, he stumbled upon something. Just 300 feet from the spot where the barrel had been found in 1985, John Cody found a second 55-gallon barrel, which unbelievably had been missed during the area search 15 years earlier. Which is amazing. So the barrel was identical to the first one found in 1985, and when it was opened, it also contained two bodies. Uh, This one contained two young girls, one aged between two and four years old, and a second aged between one and three years old. And like the two found in 1985, they had also died from blunt force trauma, and it was believed that they were also daughters of the woman found in the first barrel. Uh, Now, the discovery of the second barrel brought about some, shall we say, uncomfortable questions for New Hampshire law enforcement. The main one... That's one way to put it. One way to say that. Um, The main question being how it was missed when it was just 300 feet or 91 meters away from the first barrel. And it just sat there for 15 years. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, how could it be missed when John Cody managed to find it so easily just wandering around and looking at the area and getting a feel for his surroundings? So that's a big question mark. Um, now, the discovery of the two bodies led to the exhumation of the mother and daughter found in uh, 1985, and DNA was compared from all four bodies. Uh, Now, the woman and child in the first barrel were mother and daughter, uh, just like they'd always uh, been believed to be. And the youngest child in the second barrel was also the woman's daughter. Uh, So she was the eldest child's half-sister. But the middle child was 
of no relation to the other three victims. So investigators once again began sifting through missing persons reports to try and find a match to the four victims because obviously now originally they were just looking for like a mother and daughter and now they know they've got a mother and two daughters and potentially a stepdaughter mm-hmm. um but no solid leads came of it and once again the case went cold the working theory had been that the mother had been in a relationship with the father of the unrelated child and at some point in the late 1970s or early 1980s he had killed her her daughters and his own child and disposed of their bodies in the park and the case went cold until 2011 Rhonda Randall is a social worker who grew up in New Hampshire, about 30 miles away from Allenstown. Um, And as her children grew up and moved out, she discovered genealogy as a hobby. And Rhonda specialized in adoption searches, helping adoptees find their biological family. So Rhonda started doing this in the pre-internet era. Uh, if you can believe such a thing existed. Uh, And she would spend hours, days, even weeks in local libraries and town archives, uh, as well as hours on the phone. Uh, And she has said that her phone bill would sometimes run up at around like $1,100 per month, which is high. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, as the internet became more ubiquitous and DNA developments made commercial testing much more accessible and affordable, Rhonda's phone bill went down, thank God, and uh, the way that adoption searches were carried out changed as well. So it was 2011 when Rhonda first heard about the Bear Brook murders, and she was shocked that she... um, hadn't heard anything about the case in the 26 years since the first barrel was discovered. Uh, Rhonda said she was shocked not just at the lack of publicity, but the fact that there hadn't been a lot of effort put in to try and identify the victims. Yes, obviously law enforcement had, had examined years worth of missing persons reports, distributed sketches, and they'd even had DNA profiling done. But at that time, when they'd done that in the early 2000s, the US National DNA Database, CODIS, wasn't approved for use in familial searching. It was only used for matching crime scene DNA to perpetrator DNA. So as a genealogist, Rhonda decided to get involved and she roped her brother Scott into it. She tells the Bearbrook podcast that she talked to Scott that she talked Scott into visiting Allenstown with her on Memorial Day weekend in 2011 so that she could familiarise herself with the area. And from then on, he was in it as much as she was. And they went from speaking to each other like once or twice a year to speaking up to six or seven times a day. And as sad as it is, I do love that this gave them something to bond over as siblings. Like a a shared project or a shared passion. Like, that's really nice. Their research is documented in their blog, Oak Hill Research, where they also investigate other New England cold cases. And it was a great resource for this episode because it gave us like a much better timeline to work to. Because as you'll see, this story is about to start jumping around a lot. A lot. Right. So during their trip to Allenstown, Rhonda and Scott visited Bearbrook Gardens, which is the uh, mobile home park that backed onto the state park. 
and uh, they talked to residents, and they found out that many of the residents didn't even know that the second barrel had been found 11 years earlier. And this was one of the catalysts for Rhonda and Scott deciding to publicize and investigate the case. And now, uh, one thing that we actually didn't mention at the start of this episode was that the first barrel had actually been discovered a couple of months before the hunter found it in uh, November of 1985. So during the summer of 1985, a group of preteen boys who lived in the mobile home park had been uh, playing out in the park, and they were playing a version of hide-and-seek with uh, a depending on where you're from here, quad bike or a four-wheeler or an ATV. So yes, so they were playing hide-and-seek with an ATV, which sounds fun, but also a bit scary um, <laughs> to me anyway. Nah, I think it sounds fun. <laughs> um, now, while they were out doing that, one of the boys had found the barrel and then the, as preteen boys are want to do they decided to kick it over because you know that happens um and when they did that a white liquid that they described as being like rotten milk leaked out of the barrel Uh, now the boys chose not to investigate any further and went back to their game and they told their parents um about what had happened and when the bodies were discovered a few months later their parents realized that their sons had likely discovered the barrel in the summer so when the bodies were found in the barrel it was sort of huge news as you can imagine in allenstown and especially big news in the uh bear brook gardens mobile home park would you have investigated further 12 year old taylor i no here's the thing I wouldn't have gotten that far. I was the I was the hey you guys, I don't think this is such a good idea. So like <laughs> whereas I was the suck it up, come here. Exactly. Like I would have been like don't you guys just want to go play some board games instead of kicking over this <laughs> oil drum like no, I'd have been the one who was like right find me like a pointy stick so I can prize it open. No, 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 no. So, mobile home parks are, by nature, very transient places. Long-term residents are actually quite rare, um, despite this sort of transient nature. Uh, there are actually quite a few long-term residents at Bearbrook Gardens, and they helped uh, Rhonda and Scott to map out the park, who lived on which lot, uh, from 1977 to 1985. Rhonda and Scott also found that local residents hadn't been questioned by police in 1985 or in 2000 when the barrels were found. That I find incredible because when you look at a map, it's meters away. Yeah, I don't get that at all. These two siblings, along with local residents, believed that whoever disposed of the barrels in the park was familiar with Bearbrook Gardens and the surrounding area because, I would say, where the barrels were found was quite close to the road, it was close to the trailer park. They could have gone much further into like, the very dense forestry where there was less chance of them being seen by passers-by, where there was less chance of the barrels being discovered. Um, whereas police uh, had the theory that it was a random sort of trucker serial killer who had dumped the barrels in a random place 
where they weren't known and it was just somewhere that they just passed through. Mm -hmm. But locals never really bought into that theory. So when Rhonda and Scott had recreated the mobile home park and its residents, they traced every single female resident to find out if they were alive or if they weren't, when and where they had died. Uh, when they talked to people who had lived in Bearbrook Gardens during the period that the four victims were likely murdered, they discovered that nobody remembered the three young girls having lived in the park. So after a year's worth of work recreating the 115 lots in the mobile home park and all the residents who had lived in each lot over a seven-year period, Rhonda and Scott realized that the victims likely never lived in the park or even in Allenstown. Which is a lot of work to get to that conclusion. So in 2012, uh, the, the two sibling sleuths uh, decided to, to go in a different direction, and they began to investigate using DNA to identify the victims. Now, by this time, commercial DNA testing was becoming a thing, if you will, and sites like Ancestry, which were once a place for checking public records and building family trees the old-fashioned way, they were now a place for you to upload your DNA profile and find long-lost relatives that way. So, Rhonda and Scott began to investigate this as a way of identifying the victims, but they soon hit a brick wall, because Ancestry.com required samples to be submitted as saliva, which obviously was not possible for the Bearbrook victims. Rhonda and Scott went back to doing things the old school way. They travelled around USA, they talked to former Allenstown officers who had worked there in the late 70s and early 80s, they spent days in libraries and archives looking through public records and even old phone books. They went flyering around Allenstown and the surrounding areas, when they learned that motorbike gangs had been operating in the Bearbrook area in the early 1980s, they attended motorcycle festivals and car shows to distribute flyers asking for information on the victims. That's a lot of work oh, yeah. and a lot of their own money and resource. Mm -hmm. In 2013, new composite sketches were drawn up and distributed in the local area and Rhonda decided that this was a perfect opportunity to really publicise the images of the victims and get some answers and ultimately find their names. Yeah. Because without their names, law enforcement still didn't have a good jumping off point in looking for a murderer. The case was reported by CNN, and although it got a lot of citizen sleuths or web sleuths interested, it didn't generate a great deal of new information, except obviously the the psychics and mystic megs and the so-called tip-line crazies yeah. that nobody needs. Yeah. Um, so, if you recall, we said that the barrels had been found on the site of the former Bearbrook store, which had burned down in 1983, uh, but the site had never been cleared or repurposed. So, um, in 2011... Rhonda contacted the owner, Ed Gallagher, who, after years of being questioned about the case and the accusations, uh, as well as caring for his wife, who, who was very ill, um, she called Ed Gallagher to ask him what he knew. Now, to begin with, Gallagher refused to talk about the case, but eventually, after three years of phone calls, 
He told Rhonda that he believed the person who had disposed of the bodies was a man named Bobby Evans. Uh, this was the first time that anyone had heard a specific name in relation to the case. And uh, we should also say at this point that Rhonda and Scott always shared their research and findings with New Hampshire law enforcement. Ed Gallagher never gave Rhonda any details as to why he thought his former co-worker um, could have been the murderer, other than he was odd and aloof. Nonetheless, Rhonda and Scott jumped on this new lead and tried to find out who Bobby Evans was, where he was now. Gallagher had worked with Evans at the Warbeck Mill. Evans was an electrician who was helping to decommission the mill. He also helped helped Gallagher around his property with some odd jobs. When the mill was being commissioned, there were parts of the electrical works that couldn't be disposed of at like a regular like refuse trash dump. Uh, they would, well, they were supposed to be disposed of by professionals, which is very mm -hmm. expensive. So we don't know exactly what these uh, elements were that couldn't be disposed of, but uh, certain elements like asbestos fall into this category. They're classed as very dangerous to the public, so you have to have like proper professionals come in. They dispose, they remove it, and they take it away, and it's destroyed in a controlled environment or it's uh, like buried um, in some place that's deemed safe. Yeah. However, Gallagher had let Evans bury some of these items on his property. Which is strange, but we'll go with it. <laughs> and some of them were buried in large metal barrels. Just like the ones in which the four bodies were found. Hmm. Rhonda tracked down a 72-year-old electrician named Bob Evans in New Hampshire, uh, and he assured her that he had never worked around Bear Brook, uh, but he did know of two other electricians called Bob Evans. She had the wrong Bob Evans. Um, <laughs> and so Rhonda was sort of beginning to give up on the Bob Evans angle. And instead, uh, she started focusing on another tip that the victims were a family of travelers, or uh, the word that she uses is uh, gypsies, from South Carolina, who had traveled to New Hampshire for work. And she uh, went so far as to posit that the reason the bodies were found undressed was because their clothes could have identified them as travelers. But uh, Scott wasn't so convinced and stuck uh, with the Bob Evans line of investigation. So they found an address for Bob Evans from Ed Gallagher, which took them to uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, and eerily almost next door to the Bob Evans that they'd already spoken to. So they managed to find people who knew about the Bob Evans that they were looking for, not those other guys. Um, and uh, some people they spoke to actually speculated that Bob Evans was from somewhere down south uh, because he wore a heavy jacket all year round in New Hampshire and seemed to not be used to the, the climate there. <laughs> That's a really interesting thing for them to all remember going on for 30 years later i could totally see that though like i you notice those kinds of things like you're like oh you're from away like you're not 
you can't handle the the temperature like you're wearing <laughs> your jacket i see i see how it is i mean in like north yorkshire and the whole of northern england we will rip the shit out of anyone who is like complaining it's cold in september we're like put a fucking jacket It'll on. be fine let's but my thing is like if you wore a heavy jacket all year round in new hampshire it can get really hot in the summers really humid so like he mm. m- must have been used to much higher heat than than that yeah oh okay so in new england that's the sort of thing people notice yeah Eventually, Rhonda and Scott ran into a brick wall and they couldn't find any more information on Bob Evans. Before he arrived in New Hampshire, where he went, where he was from, just nothing really. But. Sorry, I just had to bark there a bit. (laughs) Rigby had some input. Yeah. (laughs) But while Rhonda and Scott were investigating in New Hampshire, there were some big developments happening in DNA analysis, one of which was isotopic analysis. So we talked a little bit about isotopic analysis in episode 39, which was on Jennifer Fairgate and the Istyle woman. And the basic way it works is that the air we breathe and the tap water we drink have isotopic signatures made up of different levels of chemicals, elements and radiation uh, in the water or the air. And these signatures become embedded in the enamel of our teeth. So when our teeth are analyzed, when our teeth are analyzed and the isotopic signatures are developed, they correspond to a particular time and area of the world. Hair can also be tested in this way, but whereas teeth show where a person spent their childhood, hair shows where they lived in the months or even years before their deaths, depending upon the length of their hair. The four victims found in the barrels had their teeth and hair analysed using this new procedure, and maps were produced showing where they were likely to have grown up and where they had lived in the months before their deaths. So this testing showed that the four victims lived together in the northeastern USA for up to three months before they were murdered. Uh, It also showed that the mother and two children had all been born and spent their early lives on the west coast of the USA or the Midwest, um, and that the unrelated child had been born and lived further inland, uh, most likely in Arizona, New Mexico, or um, an upper Midwestern state like Minnesota or Wisconsin. Uh, But in all four of the victims, other areas also couldn't be excluded. Um, And we'll we'll put the isotope map in the show notes um, because it's it makes more sense with if you're like looking at it. Yeah. Now it sounds like a huge area because it is, um, but it at least confirmed that the four victims were from somewhere in the United States and, you know, slightly narrowed down the area they could have been from, um, especially since the four sets of tests overlapped in the upper Midwest and in New England. Yeah. So at the same time that this investigation was going on, there was another investigation going on thousands of miles away in San Bernardino, California. 
and the two cases were about to link up and bring some answers, but also a whole fuck ton more questions. As as this case is, is used to. Yeah. But uh, to explain this, we are going back to the 80s again. Back to the future. <laughs> In the summer of 1986, a young girl named Lisa had been abandoned by a man presumed to be her father, going by the name of Gordon Jensen, at a mobile home park in Scotts Valley in Central California. They had arrived there in January 1986, and they lived in a tiny camper truck. Jensen had told people that Lisa's mother had died from cancer when Lisa was still a baby, although he did also tell another yarn that which was that Lisa's mother had died in a car crash. Uh, the park owners, Catherine and Richard Decker, noticed that Lisa, who was aged about five years old, had no toys. She looked quite thin, generally a bit bit neglected. Mm-hmm. So they took it upon themselves to keep an eye on the girl and make sure that she was all right. And by June, Gordon Jensen had so heavily hinted that he wanted someone to take Lisa off his hands. Catherine and Richard's daughter and son-in-law lived in San Bernardino and they'd had trouble conceiving, so they came to an agreement. Jensen had to leave for a few weeks for work, so the Deckers would take Lisa to their daughters, see if she settled in with them, and if all went well. When Jensen got back to the mobile home park, they would hire an attorney and the adoption would be legalised. As you can probably guess, it didn't quite go to plan. No. Um, so, Gordon Jensen never returned to the park, and the Deckers never saw him again. And now, this presented them with a problem. Um, their daughter now had a child in her custody who she had no legal right to. So, they went to the police. And now, sadly, Lisa was taken away from the Deckers while authorities tried to track down Gordon Jensen. Uh, and she was eventually adopted by another family. And we don't know if she ever had any contact with the Deckers as an adult, although um, they do mention in Bear Brook that uh, information, like contact information about each was shared with the other. So yeah. they may have gotten into contact. We don't know. Um, but law enforcement would later tell the Deckers that if they hadn't kept such a close eye on Lisa or offered to take her, um, she most likely would have been murdered. So they essentially saved her life. Um, but we will get to that in a moment. Um, so a fingerprint was recovered from the mobile home park, which matched a man who was already in the system in California. But he wasn't called Gordon Jensen. Uh, Instead, on their records, he was called Curtis Kimball. Curtis Kimball had been arrested in Cypress, California in 1985 for driving under the influence, and he had been arrested and fingerprinted at the time. But Jensen, who we will now refer to as Kimball, had a huge head start on law enforcement, and the search for him went cold. Two years later, in November 1988, a man named Gerald Mockerman was pulled over in San Luis Obispo for driving a car which had been stolen from Preston in Idaho. 
fingerprinting showed that Gerald Mockerman's prints matched to Curtis Kimball, and therefore to Gordon Jensen. In the two years since he'd abandoned Lisa, authorities had discovered that she had been severely sexually abused. But when Kimball was arrested as Gerald Mockerman in 1988, authorities ordered a paternity test to determine if Lisa was actually his daughter or if he had kidnapped her. But Kimball took a plea deal and pled guilty to child abandonment and was sentenced to three years in prison. And as a result of the plea deal, the charges of child abuse were dropped and he didn't have to take a paternity test. So nobody ever found out who Lisa really was. I have some very angry thoughts about this. Child abandonment. So yeah, okay. Child abandonment is a crime. He left her with people who were looking after Mm -hmm. her. The other crime was child sex abuse. Yeah. How do you let that drop when leaving her with people who would actually look after her is probably the most responsible thing he ever did for her? Yeah, really. Why why in the hell would you not charge him for the child abuse and drop the child abandonment charges? Like it it seems backwards because I mean, I know why in terms of like, you know, his lawyers worked out a deal and that's what they did. Yeah. But if I was the prosecutor, that would, that, that isn't the way I'd go with it. (laughs) No, it's, it just makes me so mad. And say he was sentenced to three years, but he only served two and was paroled in October of 1990 but he skipped town the day after he was released and never even attended his first meeting with parole officers. And he would remain on the run for 12 years. And also, like, if you've arrested this guy, tried him, charged him, seen that he has already used two different aliases, has abandoned a child, has, like, you know hit the road every time he's been arrested as me as immediately as possible wouldn't you think that the second he gets released he's gonna it skip might be town? a bit of a flight yes risk. like uh just putting putting you know in this guy's case six and six together like come on uh, it seems pretty obvious to me but what are you gonna do so 12 years In 2002, Curtis Kimball was living in the San Francisco area under the name Larry Vanner. He had married a local woman named Unsun Jun uh, in an unofficial ceremony the previous spring. But in the spring of 2002, Unsun had gone missing and her friends and family were getting worried. So law enforcement would eventually find uh, Unsun and she had been murdered and buried under a huge pile of cat litter in the basement of her own home. And now uh, we're going to do a full episode on Curtis Kimball next month, uh, but for this episode we don't really have time to get into the full details of Unsun's murder. Uh, But we will talk about that next time. So when he was questioned about Unsun's murder uh, as Larry Vanner, he gave his fingerprints willingly. But, uh, if you think about it, the last time Kimball had been arrested was the late 1980s, and at that point it took a couple of days to run fingerprints through the system, Uh, whereas by 
2002, it was all computerized and it could be done in a couple of hours. So law enforcement theorized that he gave his fingerprints as Larry Vanner, thinking that he would have a couple of days to, to get away and assume a new identity and start again. But it didn't work like that anymore. And his prints were matched very quickly to Curtis Kimball. So he could be instantly arrested uh, because there was already a warrant for Curtis Kimball skipping parole. The case was handed to Contra Costa detective Roxanne Grunheide, who continued to investigate long after Kimball was arrested. And she linked up with San Bernardino officers and convinced them to reopen the Lisa case to try and identify her and find her biological family. In 2003, Curtis Kimball pled no contest to the murder of Unsun June. Against his lawyer's advice, his lawyer actually stood up in court and went on the record saying that it was against his advice. <laughs> and Kimball was sentenced to 15 to life. Uh, Roxanne, Roxanne Grunheide believes that it was because Kimball overheard her and the district attorney talking in the courtroom and he heard her say that she was requesting the paternity test for Lisa um, and had asked San Bernardino to reopen the case. Lisa, by this time, was 21 years old and the paternity, te paternity test showed that she was not the daughter of Curtis Kimball. But her case didn't go anywhere because, similarly to the Bear Brook case, nobody knew where she'd come from and it wasn't as simple as an adoption search because adoptees normally have a starting point, names, locations, or even just the state that they were born in. Lisa had none of that. So her case went cold for another 10 years. Uh, Curtis Kimball died in 2010 at the High Desert State Prison. During his seven years inside, he never had a single visitor or phone call. And despite numerous interviews with Roxanne and other detectives, he never admitted to having Lisa with him. He instead pretended that his heavy drinking had caused him to suffer severe memory loss. Uh, his body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in the sea. In 2013, Lisa's case was handed over to Peter Headley, uh, and there wasn't much new in terms of evidence, but investigators now knew that Curtis Kimball was a murderer, uh, which cast a sort of new lens on things and led them to believe that there could be more victims. Um, much like the Bear Brook case, investigators pored over missing persons reports, uh, trying to find ones that matched Lisa's circumstances. Uh, if they found missing children who could potentially be Lisa, they contacted the family and asked them for DNA samples, but none of them matched. At times, Kimball had told people Lisa's mother was called Donna or Denise, um, but that lead also went nowhere. Uh, they even traveled to Canada because some leads pointed to her mother being a nurse in Canada. But again, nothing came of it, and the, cape, and the case kept going cold. Uh, at one point, Lisa, now in her early 30s, suggested using commercial DNA sites like Ancestry or 23andMe to try and find relatives. But Peter Headley initially dismissed this as just being something for, quote, hobbyists and retirees. Um, but yeah, so a couple years later, uh, one, with all of the other leads being exhausted, Lisa again brought up the idea and Peter decided to go for it. 
Lisa's DNA was uploaded to a number of websites and they started to get matches of distant cousins. Now, this sounds exciting and and it is because it's the nearest she's ever had to find in biological family. But these were like fourth and fifth cousins and even the average family where say each branch has like two or three children, you would have more than 4,000 fifth cousins. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. As we said at the top of the show, we're not genealogists. Uh, We understand the basics. We've both done a lot of research for this episode. We have like a hobbyist's understanding of like old school genealogy. Um, But by this time, so I think this is Mm 2014-ish, law enforcement could use familial DNA searches to find uh, near miss or close match to a sample they had from a crime scene. But that was usually limited to uh, immediate family members. Uh, So parents, siblings, maybe aunts or uncles. Um, Because the kind of tests used by law enforcement only measured 23 genetic markers. Hence the name 23andMe. But the new DNA tests being used by genealogists in commercial DNA testing were called autosomal DNA testing, and they measured more than 7,000 markers in each sample, which is why they can match two relatives who are so far removed, so distant, as opposed to familial DNA tests, which were still being used by law enforcement. Uh, and it's also why it's much more expensive than the older tests that only uh examine 23 markers, which is why it isn't the everyday standard used by law enforcement yet. So Detective Headley and Lisa realized that they needed a lot of help uh, because getting a hit of a very, very distant cousin isn't enough. Um, And to build Lisa's family tree, they needed help from someone who knew how to combine Uh, this new technology with the old school techniques of genealogy, like searching through the public records and building family trees and all that. And this is when we meet the woman who is quite possibly uh, the godmother of forensic genealogy, uh, Barbara Ray Venter. So Barbara, much like Rhonda Randall, took up genealogy as a hobby. She is originally from New Zealand, but now lives in California. Uh, In 2012, she put her DNA online and found a cousin in the UK that she didn't know about. And this cousin had just found out that the man who raised him wasn't actually his father. Uh, Barbara took a course offered by a nonprofit called DNA Adoption and used her new skills to help this cousin find his biological father. She quickly began volunteering with nonprofits who helped adoptees find their biological families, and soon she was teaching the same course that she uh, uh, had taken to help her cousin. It was dnaadoption.com who Detective Headley reached out to in March 2015, and that is how he met Barbara and asked if the technique she used to find adoptees' biological families could be used to help identify someone who didn't know who they were, someone like Lisa, who was essentially a living Jane Doe. Now, Barbara said, yes, it was possible, but it was going to be a lot harder than adoption searches because there was no starting point. You know, no paperwork, no state, nothing. Barbara, along with volunteers from the nonprofit, began working on Lisa's family tree. 
And we should say at this point that Barbara and the DNAadoption.com team did this for free. They were all volunteers uh, from from the nonprofit who worked on this case, and it pretty much consumed Barbara's life. Can imagine. Um, yeah. It was a slow process, as you probably imagine. Uh, Barbara and her team would take information provided by fourth or fifth cousins and use it to build their family tree. And they would basically go up the family tree until they found the common ancestor between Lisa and the distant cousins. And then they would try and work their way back down Lisa's tree using traditional genealogy techniques such as uh, public records, wedding announcements, and even social media when you get to the, sort of the, the generations who are still living mm. now. They would inevitably come up against brick walls. And when they did, uh, Detective Headley would reach out to the nearest living member on that tree or around the brick wall and ask them if they would test. There was re- resistance. Some people flat out refused, which of course is their right. There were no court orders for samples. Others thought it was a scam, so Headley would tell them to contact their local law enforcement and have them verify him. But plenty of people volunteered their DNA, and some of Lisa's newfound cousins even joined Barbara's team to help build Lisa's family tree. Uh, of those cousins who gave DNA and helped build the trees, a number of them lived in New Hampshire. Uh-huh. See, it is all about to link up, we promise. <laughs> So, yeah, all links back to Bearbrook. Uh, Barbara had more than 100 volunteers, and after spending more than 20,000 hours searching, they had, had identified more than 25,000 of Lisa's relatives across both her maternal and paternal family trees. Which is a lot of hours and a lot of people. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's truly amazing. Um, now... While they were building these trees, Barbara and her volunteers sort of always had it in the back of their minds that um, Lisa's parents might be dead. They might have been victims of Curtis Kimball. So in the summer of 2016, Barbara and her team thought that they had narrowed down Lisa's mother to just one person, to the exclusion of all others. And Barbara contacted Detective Peter Headley with the name. He phoned her back less than an hour later and said that that person didn't exist. Barbara knew she and her team had found Lisa's mother. You know, they had family obituaries from newspapers. They had birth and death records for other family members. uh, And Peter Headley immediately realized what this meant. Lisa's mother was dead. Uh, He was using searches of voter records and DMV records, so if you hadn't voted for decades or renewed your driver's license, you wouldn't show up in these databases. So, Detective Headley managed to contact the nearest living relatives, people who actually remembered Lisa as a child. And finally, 31 years after she had been, been abandoned at the mobile home park in Scotts Valley, California, Lisa finally got to know her real name. Don Bowden. As incredible as it was that Lisa finally knew her real name and where she came from, that still threw up a hell of a lot more questions. Where was her mother? What happened to her? How did they how did she disappear? Why did nobody file missing persons reports? And we don't have answers to all these questions. 
But to tell you what we do know, we're going back to the 1980s. <laughs> Again. So Lisa slash Dawn's mother was named Denise Bowden and she was from New Hampshire. She had last been seen by relatives at Thanksgiving dinner in New Ham- in Manchester in New Hampshire in 1981. So Manchester is about 20 minutes away from Allenstown and the Bearbrook State Park. Denise had brought her new boyfriend to the dinner and his name was Bob Evans. Denise was 23 and Dawn was just six months old. Denise had fought with her family before she left at uh, before she left after Thanksgiving dinner. And that was the last time anyone ever saw her. But nobody reported Denise or her daughter missing. Uh, so just to take a beat and work out where we are. Curtis Kimball had used the aliases Gordon Jensen, Gerald Mockerman and Larry Vanner during his various run-ins with police in California. He had a young girl with him in 1986 he called Lisa, who we now know to be Dawn. He had been in a relationship with Dawn's mother, Denise, in Manchester, New Hampshire, in 1981, and nobody had seen Denise since Thanksgiving that year. He was known to Denise's family as Bob Evans. Bob Evans was the name given by Ed Gallagher, the owner of the store in Bearbrook State Park, who he, as the person who he suspected, disposed of the four bodies in the two barrels in the late 70s or early 1980s. And breathe. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in the summer of 2016, a case manager at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NECMEC, um, who had been involved in the Lisa case and the Bearbrook murders linked the two cases. And after cross-referencing everything they had on both cases, they contacted the New Hampshire State Police and uh, San Bernardino and told them that the two cases were linked. A few months later, in the autumn of 2016, DNA testing would confirm that Curtis Kimball was the father of the unrelated child found in the second barrel. Testing was also carried out uh, because it was believed that Denise Bowden could have been the mother found in the first barrel, but she wasn't. Um, At a press conference on January 26, 2017, New Hampshire authorities officially named Curtis Kimball as the only suspect in the Bearbrook murders and the murder of Denise Bowden. Uh, Although all the police... Nope. Although all the pieces were beginning to fit together, law enforcement still uh, have not been able to locate and recover Denise Bowden's body, uh, and it's believed that she was another of Kimball's victims. And uh, none of this new information helped identify the victims found in the barrel. And of course, there was another problem, because we don't have enough of those already in this case. Something we didn't mention earlier, partly so that we can keep this story straight in our own heads as we tell it, is that Curtis Kimball itself was another alias. When he was arrested for the murder of Unsun June in 2002, the social security number he gave came back with a placeholder number, which is a number given to people who don't have any official papers or actual social security number. And for our British listeners, social security is like national insurance. 
So in the absence of anything to confirm his actual identity, law enforcement had to go with Curtis Kimball. In 2017, they released footage from his interrogation after uh, Unson's murder in the hopes that somebody would identify him. And eventually they did. Now, law enforcement had adopted the nickname the Chameleon Killer to refer to Curtis Kimball, Bob Evans, Gordon Jensen, Gerald Mockerman, and Larry Vanner. But his real name was Terence or Terry Rasmussen. And this was confirmed in July of 2019 with DNA testing from Rasmussen's children from his first marriage when he still went by his real name. Now, authorities knew the identity of the killer, killer who had been dead for more than seven years. And no, for nine years at that point, (laughs) sorry. And he could never be prosecuted. So the case was technically solved. But we still didn't know the identity of the four victims in the barrels. Yes. So, um, there's never been a forensic genealogy investigation into the victims in the barrel uh, because their DNA samples were too degraded and damaged to be used in autosomal uh, DNA testing. So to find the identity of the Bearbrook victims, web web sleuths turned back to genealogy sites, this time focusing on message boards and forums filled with people looking for missing relatives. Web sleuth Rebecca Heath had been trying to find the victims' relatives using these missing relatives forms for almost 20 years. Uh, The problem with these forms is that there's no standard listing. Some are short like only a few sentences. Others have all the information you'd ever need. Some are outdated and some haven't been removed after people have been found and others have like broken email addresses that lead nowhere. So challenging. Um, Rebecca had to imagine who would be searching for the victims and the parents of the adult victim could be dead by now. So it would likely be siblings or maybe cousins or half-siblings or step-siblings. She spent years going through the listings on Ancestry's Missing Family and Friends forum that could fit the victims of the Bearbrook case. Uh, She requested more information and traced them as best she could. And if she found any record of them alive after 1985, she knew they weren't the victims and moved on to the next listing. Uh, And after years of pouring through so many posts and contacting so many families, she thought that she had found the identities of the victims. In the autumn of 2017, Rebecca found a listing she couldn't rule out, dated February 11th, 2000, by someone searching for their long-lost half-sister, who was born in California in the mid-1970s. Both of the parents had died, and the mother had died in a car accident. Now, that might not sound like much to most of us, but a car crash is one of the ways in which Rasmussen claimed Lisa's mother had died when they lived at the mobile home park in California in 1986. So Rebecca searched the death records for California, but couldn't find the mother's name, which only intrigued her more. She read the replies on the original post, and one was from a guy in 2003 looking for his sister and her two children who he believed um, his sister might have been 
and this guy believed that his sister might have been the mother who died in the car crash. In 2013, the marriage records for the mother were posted. In 2014, there's a reply from a woman who thinks the mother might be her missing sister, uh, who she has been looking for for decades. Rebecca contacted the family, got the dates of birth for the missing woman and two children, and they all fit with, uh, with the three related Bearbrook victims. She shared this information with another group of web sleuths, thinking that she might have cracked the identity of the three victims. But she got no real response from this online web sleuthing community. Everyone was just kind of a bit meh. Um, so feeling a bit defeated, she kind of gave up on this lead and went back to the message boards and looked for other listings which uh, might fit the Bearbrook case. Until she began listening to the Bearbrook podcast. And that was when she decided that maybe her original theory was right. She finally reached out to the original poster, uh, the one who was searching for uh, her half-sister, and she asked for more information on the mother of the half-sister. The poster told her that the mother had remarried to a man with the last name Rasmussen, and this set uh, off alarm bells for Rebecca. She then tracked down the missing mother's siblings and asked them if they remembered anything about the mother's new husband, and one of them offered the name Terry. So, two days after she had gotten the names Terry and Rasmussen, Rebecca was on the phone with Detective Peter Headley in San Bernardino, telling him uh, that she thought she had the identity of the Bearbrook victims. But while this was all happening, there was another development in DNA testing. Scientists had managed to develop usable profiles from the rootless strands of hair. So for decades, it has been thought that it was impossible to get DNA from hair that didn't have a root attached. But that is no longer the case. And Barbara Ray Venter had learnt about this new technique whilst on bed rest following open heart surgery. And she made sure that the Bearbrook victims were top of the list for this new technique. And once these profiles had been generated, they were uploaded to GEDmatch, which is one of the DNA genealogy sites. And once DNA profiles were online in 2018, Barbara was back on the case. Having just solved the case of the Golden State Killer and had open heart surgery, you know, no yeah. biggie. Ca casual. Like, it's just your normal Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The process that Barbara and her team had gone through to find Lisa's relatives had changed a lot too uh, over the past couple of years. And what used to take hours and even days now took minutes. Um, so the same week that the profiles were uploaded to GEDmatch in October 2018 and uh, Barbara was beginning to build family trees, Rebecca reported her findings to Detective Headley. And as soon as the results began to come in, Barbara was able to confirm the names that Rebecca had given to Detective Headley. So, the adult victim was Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch from La Puente, California, born in 1954. And she had been married twice and had a daughter from each of those marriages. She was last seen just after Thanksgiving in 1978 following a fight with her family where she walked out of the house and never spoke to them again. Uh, the eldest child was her daughter from 
her first marriage, Marie Elizabeth Vaughn, born in 1971. And the youngest child found in the second barrel was Marlise's daughter from her second marriage, uh, Sarah Lynn McWaters, born in 1977. Uh, It was Sarah's half-brother who had posted the original post in February uh, 2000, looking for his half-sister. Marlise had gone through custody battles for both of her daughters, uh, and both of them had temporarily lived with their fathers but they had never been reported missing or really looked for after they disappeared in 1978. Uh, now, just like Denise Bowden and Unsun Jun, Marlise had fought with her family before she disappeared, and uh, this is a known technique that uh, abusers often employ, causing rifts between uh, their victims and, and loved ones so that they have less chance to escape. Uh, It was believed that they traveled to New Hampshire soon after this fight and were killed between 1978 and 1981, which is when Rasmussen met Denise Bowden. Uh, Law enforcement are confident that both barrels were placed in the state park by Rasmussen at the same time. We still don't know the identity of the fourth victim found in the barrel. We know that she was a biological daughter of Rasmussen but we don't know who her mother is, although it is theorised that her mother is likely another victim of Rasmussen. New drawings have been released early this year, but so far there have been no developments in the case. And of course, if there are any, we will share any updates that we find. Uh, Lisa slash Dawn is happily married with a family of her own. She has requested her privacy be respected. Uh, Rhonda Randall and her brother Scott Uh, Rebecca Heath and pretty much everyone else involved in the case are still hoping that one day we will have a name for the final victim. Barbara Venter is now a consulting forensic genealogist. In 2018 she was named in the British scientific journal Nature uh, on their list of 10 people who mattered this year and in 2019 she was recognised on Time magazine's Time 100 list of most influential people. She is continuing her work, continuing to work on the unidentified child's family tree, but unfortunately none of her relatives that are on Jadmatch are close enough for her to, to find a starting point for building uh, the family tree, but Barbara remains hopeful. And that is the case of the Bearbrook murders, forensic genealogy, and the chameleon killer. Wow. <laughs> An hour and 45 minutes later. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. no, it's amazing. And I, I think that the thing that pulled me into this case initially, because I was listening to the Bearbrook podcast and like, I was initially interested because of where it happened in New Hampshire. I was like, well, that's like, it's right in my backyard. Like, I'm so curious about this. And then I remember, um, walking to class one day listening to it and I'd kind of been zoning out and so I like rewound a little bit and I was like wait a minute how do we get to California like what <laughs> what which is obviously another place you have yes, associations with it is. as well <laughs> but I was like wait I thought we were supposed to be in New Hampshire like what 
how do we get here? And so the fact that it like the the details of this case crisscrossed the entire country and like it, it's so complex and but the fact that basically a handful of regular people put all the pieces together and obviously there's still some information missing but like that's amazing it's so impressive it's so admirable i think is is the right word and like i yeah. just it's i think it's a testament to like people who just who just want to help other people yeah and let me say just on least working on lisa's family tree alone there was like ten thousand yeah. man hours a uh, hundred volunteers and, and like that's all for like people who have, have never met lisa or never yeah you know uh, never been to new hampshire never like it, it's it, i think it it it's this sort of maybe in this day and age, a rare example of the, the potential for kindness and humanity, which is really nice. Yeah, it's, it is one of those things that even though the, the context is absolutely horrific, we have at least four, five these five murder yeah. victims uh if we uh, go with the theory that uh denise bowden was murdered which i yeah. think she was uh potentially the unknown child unrelated child's mother as well so that's mm -hmm. six victims there's child abuse there's just just such a horrible context but it is one of those things that kind of does restore your faith in humanity just that little bit because it's these let's like, say these people that have never met never met lisa never met uh denise bowden never met marley's Honeychurch or her kids and just wanted yeah. to help and i say that is it is just one of those things that that does make you realize there is still good in the world and there's still people willing to help yeah. each other uh which i think is is wonderful i think also like if if nothing else and obviously there is other else's to this but this case in particular really shows the sort of escalating pace and power of technology and scientific discovery oh, yeah. cuz like just in the 35 whatever years since the the bodies were found like so much has changed the fact that you could get from absolutely nothing in and then in 35 years you've identified you know three out of the four victims you found the killer you've uncovered a sort of string of crimes and other murders you found someone's identity all through technology and well scientific technology and dna but also like global communication technology through the internet as well. 
So yeah. I think that's really cool. The, the, the one question I have in this case, one of which, which can't be answered is, so Malise's children, Sarah and Marie, Marie. Yeah. So Sarah and Marie had different fathers. There had been custody battles over these children. These children had lived with their fathers at one point, And I believe both fathers are mm -hmm. now dead. So we'll never get an answer. Where the fuck were their fathers in the late 70s? Yeah. At what point do they just give up? Yeah. I know. They, they never... They were never reported missing. It's not like they reported them missing, looked for a few years, and then gave up. They never reported them missing. Yeah. Like, I don't get that. Yeah. I, I. That's just the bit that I can't get my head around. Like we say, we'll never have an answer because um, both of Malise's uh, ex-husbands, I believe, are mm. now dead. So we'll never have an answer, but that's a bit. But if you've you've gone to court and you've put all this time and effort and money into fighting for this child yeah but then when they disappear off the face of the earth don't care it's a it's confusing That's what i don't understand yeah, i agree with that um but at the same time who are yeah. we to judge no i mean different circumstances <laughs> um so to talk a little bit about forensic genealogy here before we finish up um it might sort of seem like the greatest thing ever since the discovery of the double helix. But uh, there is quite a concern that it could be used for much more sinister or nefarious purposes. Uh, what was originally intended as a way for people to trace their family trees and reconnect with long-lost relatives, um, it's technically, if you think about it like this, technically been corrupted by law enforcement to help solve cold cases uh and you know it just so happens at this point anyway everyone likes this corruption uh because it serves a greater good in society you know it, it's helping solve these long long cold mysteries you know yeah and using the word corruption because i couldn't think of another word to use it that is technically the right word yeah. but we always think of corruption as being yeah. a bad thing it just means that it's been used for something different than its yeah, original it's purpose intended. it's just that we like this yes, new purpose it's, it, yeah it's been repurposed and it, it's it's currently or thus far has been repurposed in this sort of positive and constructive way but i mean it's it's very easy to see why some people are concerned because this dna information is now out in the public and it can be used in other ways that don't serve such a greater good so some people are concerned that one of the things that might happen is that big pharma could harvest all of this dna information uh, and because the autosomal DNA tests are so accurate uh, that they can show uh, predisposition to certain diseases or conditions, people are worried that um, uh, insurance companies, pharmaceutical industries could use that to increase uh, health insurance premiums. 
And as right-wing populism continue to rise up across the world, white supremacists are weaponizing these sites and their results. Some are using them to score points in Aryan circles, you know. DNA test on the wall, who is the whitest of us all. Uh, Others are using them to shame other white supremacists, for example, someone who appears white, you know, like Taylor (laughs) or myself, yeah. I mean, we are white as marshmallow fluff, but you know. (laughs) Um, You know, that somebody who could appear white who appears white and always believes themselves to be uh, white would have like could have like a tiny percentage of non-white yeah. DNA that would only be found using this kind of test that's so incredibly accurate and like say tests against like mm-hmm. seven thousand different mm-hmm. markers. Um, but this isn't really helping anyone else either because the racists are also using it to reject their test results, saying that they know their bodies better than any scientist could. They only see a purely white person looking back at them in the mirror. Lovely. But while they're, also, while they're using it to, you know, take each other out, they could also use it to hunt down anyone they see as not pure, being purely white enough, or someone they see as a person of colour, quote-unquote, passing for being white. So there are probably a million other ways that, uh, you know, your DNA could be exploited that we haven't thought of yet. Um, and not only this, but as we said, you have literally thousands of cousins, whether you know about it or not, you haven't asked for their permission before you put their DNA online by submitting your own, nor have they asked for your permission when they submit their DNA. Um, yeah, it it is believed that every sort of person in the Unova so-called Western world has their DNA on one of these sites in some form. Okay. I totally believe that. Yeah. Um, now, the big companies like Ancestry keep their website private and don't allow law enforcement to harvest profiles from them. Uh, but that's not to say that their terms and condition won't change in the future. Now, GEDmatch is open to anyone, and their terms and conditions basically say that uh, it's meant for genealogy, but we also can't stop anyone using your DNA and data for other purposes. Um, And it is, in fact, GEDmatch, which uh, Barbara Venter and other volunteers use to solve cold cases. Uh, And GEDmatch, I don't know if, I can't remember now if we mentioned this, but it's not... It's not a testing site. It's a. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say. It's like a database of uh, results from other testing sites or companies. So if you get your ancestry DNA results back or your 23andMe or your whatever it is now, um, you can upload them to GEDmatch and then that gets put into this bigger database of all these different results. But yeah. so, so it is like uploading to GEDmatch is voluntary, but once it's there, or if someone yeah, else has uploaded theirs that is in your family. Yeah, and supposedly you can de- you can remove all your data mm-hmm. from all of these sites and you can even force, in theory, Ancestry or 23andMe, whoever, to destroy your physical DNA sample. Mm-hmm. 
but there's no guarantee that they actually do this and it's very difficult just to remove your profile from the yeah. websites themselves. Oh, I believe it. Um, yeah, so with all that in mind, there's not really a guarantee that your DNA or your, your data, your information is safe. Um, 23andMe agreed to a $300 million deal in 2018 with the pharmaceutical giant uh GSK or Glasgow Glass Glasgow Smith Klein. So they made a deal with uh, GSK to sell aggregate data. Now, I'm assuming that's like so, um. So that's not it's not yet your individual profile, but it's kind of it's like the the aggregate results of things. Yeah. So they don't. They don't have like your informa individual information, but they have averages and they have they have some of your data, just they don't have your name like, attached to it's it. It's anonymized and also like averaged or sort of the pool of information kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um now, and that all this is not even mentioning that, you know any of these companies could easily change hands and be bought or sold and their terms might change and you know who knows where your data might end up and we've talked about it before even though dna is scientific fact that doesn't mean it's not open to manipulation so for example taylor has never been to my new house but she helped me pack and load up the moving van when i moved so her dna is all over some of my yeah. stuff like she helped me take my furniture to pieces. Yeah. So that, that your bed DNA is frame, all over my bed. That bed frame is yeah. Um. But yeah. So Taylor's DNA is all over my things. But that's not proof that she was ever here. Yeah. And so there is a fear that this kind, the way facts can be twisted in this way, um, that there'll be a way to use that in regards to forensic genealogy especially in cases where only partial profiles are developed from crime scenes. Yeah. yeah. I, I know I have friends who've like uploaded their DNA to these, like done the 23 and me thing to find out their, you know, geographic or ethnic heritage or whatever. But I'm terrified to do that. Yeah. I see. I want I want to do the like the ethnic heritage make one because I know that a lot of my family is like Northern and Eastern European, mm -hmm. um, and Germanic as well. So I want I, I do kind of want to know that. On the other hand, I know nothing about my mum's family, so I don't even know where they're mm -hmm. from. So yeah, I I want to know that, but I'm like, is it worth it? I know. That's I just stick with with the stories and what I know that you know part of my family is uh, from Russia part are from Scandinavia. Some of them were German Jews who escaped luckily and you know, I can live with those stories yeah. and not have Yeah. And not spit in a cup to find out I know, like the exact percentages. I'm curious. But also scared. But if you guys want to see us do twenty three and me tests and you want to pay for them? We'll do them. No, <laughs> you can. I'm not. 
when when I'm on my deathbed, maybe I'll do it then. Well, by then like, they won't even I... need like your spit. They just sort of wave a wand over your general vicinity <laughs> and be like, "Oh yes, uh, Ukrainian." Uh. <laughs> no, I think it, it is really worrying how, and like we say, like dead matches, terms and conditions, or small print is literally like, meh. We don't care. Yeah. It's, it's not our fault if someone does it, uses it for, for something else. Yeah, like else. initially their terms and conditions, I, I believe, didn't mention um, stuff like this. And then after uh, this case and the uh, Golden State Killer case, they updated them to basically say like, we do our best to protect your data, but, you know, they could be used by third party uh, investors. Yeah, like, so we... We have no control over how third parties yeah. will use this information. Yeah. And when you think about it, you would never put all of your personal details on social media. Like, okay, I know like you can have like closed accounts, but say like if you're on like Instagram or Twitter and you don't have a private account and you don't know who mm -hmm. can, who's looking at your data, you'd never put your, your phone number or your address or your social security number. I, mean, I don't even, yeah, I mean, I don't even have my, I don't even use my real name on Instagram. Yeah anymore as you yeah. know i would never I, would, I don't even like geotag my photos in like the village i live in yeah um but uploading your dna to these sites you are literally giving every bit of information out about you yeah uh, i think like especially especially the health stuff especially mm. and also like as as DNA sequencing and as um, human genome sequencing gets more and more advanced, I have a uh, one of my cousins is actually very deep in the world of um, health and biology as it relates to the human genome. Um, like you're gonna start discovering all of the specific genes and, and markers and mutations that turn on and off the potential for, for different diseases, right? And so beyond just mm -hmm. insurance companies, you're also going to potentially have these sites in the future that say, upload your DNA or your results, and we'll tell you if you're going to die of Alzheimer's. And then that in itself then opens up the the risk for like a new age version of eugenics Absolutely. as well. And like, yeah, it's, I think the problem is the technology is so new and it's unregulated and we don't know where it can go. Yeah. Legislation hasn't caught up with the potential for it and... Yeah, okay, so all these sites are based in the US. They obviously all have offices and footholds elsewhere. Yeah. But you then need some kind of international law in some way to cover Everything. all of it. Yeah. Because you could have your privacy protected in one country but not in another. Um, yeah, there's just too many unknowns, I think. Mm. But again, it can be a really great thing that helps solve cases. Yeah. But, you know, there's always... It's a it's a double edged sword. Yeah, it is, and eventually it will just come down to the greater good. Yeah. Is it is it worth more to us as a crime fighting tool than 
does that outweigh the risks to personal safety of every person on the planet? You decide. Tell us in the comments. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lovely, uplifting episode for yeah. you. Uh, but yeah, uh, tell us in the comments. Let us know what you think. Have Have you done one of these yeah. tests? Tell us. Um, we'd be really interested to know yeah. uh, what you found. And yeah, next month we will do a proper episode on Terry Rasmussen because... That piece of shit was up to all sorts. Yeah, there's a lot there. And yeah, there are a lot of other victims like uh, Unsun Jun who we don't want to just leave as a footnote. Yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so thank you guys for listening to this very long bonus <laughs> episode. Uh, yeah. It's, it's currently sitting at about two and a half hours raw. That will be cut down, but I'm going to guarantee you it's going to be longer than our normal episodes. So. Yeah. So, so you're welcome. Yes. You get extra bonus bonus episodes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, bye bye. bye.